1: That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, mental health conditions, and sexual assault that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. We can't always get what we want in life. The dream job, the killer car, and the picture-perfect family are always slightly out of reach. While some learn to accept the cards they've been dealt, others push forward, pursuing their deepest desires regardless of the obstacles. A select, rather devious few, however, do neither. Nurse Jane Toppen lived her entire life devoid of a loving family. While others around her experienced the joys of doting parents and affectionate partners in marriage, Jane watched on with envious rage. If she couldn't have a loving family to call her own, she was going to make sure no one else did either. This is Medical Murders, a podcast original. Every year, Thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm, but a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting, I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses and medical professionals we'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD.
0: Hi everyone, this is Dr. Kipper. I'm very excited to be here because today's episode features a nurse as our serial killer, and I've known a lot of tough nurses.
1: You can find episodes of medical murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream medical murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type medical murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on nurse Jane Toppin, one of America's first female serial killers. During her 15-year career, Jane preyed on the sickly. Instead of providing her patients with top-notch care, she poisoned her unsuspecting victims. While she confessed to committing 31 murders between 1880 and 1901, her exact death count is believed to be well over 100. Today, we'll examine Jane's tragic childhood, her devious years in nursing school, and how, despite her poisonous proclivities, she became a highly recommended private nurse in eastern Massachusetts. Next time, we'll follow Jane's trail of compulsive murders that led to her ultimate downfall. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. 36-year-old Amelia Finney thought it was a nightmare. There was no other explanation. Why else would a mysterious woman lay beside her briefly paralyzed body and shower her with kisses. To her best recollection, she'd been treated for a uterine ulcer and administered some kind of bitter medicine to ease the pain. But now, Amelia found herself assaulted. Even while dozing in and out of consciousness, Amelia could sense something was wrong. She could feel the woman palpitate with sexual pleasure as she slowly removed Amelia's covers and took comfort beside the recovering patient in bed. Amelia could also feel the cold glass cup pressed up against her lips as the woman urged her to drink just a little more. Even if this was just a dream, something felt inherently evil. Amelia knew she had to fight off the woman's advances at all costs. She pursed her lips together tight, blocking the liquid. Fortunately, the bustling hospital spared little room for privacy. Even late at night, nurses and doctors made their rounds, and soon the woman fled, leaving Amelia to write off her assault as a drug-induced dream. Amelia wouldn't put all the pieces of her nightmare together until years later, when news of Nurse Jane Toppen's murders ignited the nation. It turned out... It wasn't a nightmare at all. She had barely survived death at the hands of Jolly Jane, one of America's first female serial killers. Jolly Jane Toppin wasn't born a hardened murderer. Like most serial killers, a series of tragic circumstances corrupted her to the marrow. Born around 1857 to an Irish couple in Boston, Massachusetts, Jane was dealt a very bad hand in life. At the time, Irish Catholic immigrants were viewed as second-class citizens who had sailed across the seas to leech off the American dream. As such, Irish Americans faced constant discrimination across all levels of society. Store owners even displayed No Irish-need-apply signs to remind new arrivals they were not welcome. While Jane's birth name, Honora Kelly, epitomized a woman who upheld virtue and honor, she quickly learned that one could not be both honorable and Irish in Victorian-era America. There was no such thing. But her Irish roots were the least of her problems. A year after she was born, her mother, Bridget, passed away from tuberculosis. Whether it was out of despair or habit, Jane's now single father, Peter Kelly, took to the bottle. Soon, Peter reportedly earned the nickname Kelly the crack for his eccentric behavior. Unable to treat his alcoholism or hold down a job, Peter neglected his duties as a father. His daughters were known to roam the streets of Boston sporting tattered clothes and bruises with no parental figure to turn to, it's unlikely that Jane ever had a chance.
0: According to developmental psychologist John Bowlby, a child's attachment to their primary caregiver is most critical before the age of two. In essence, attachment is a natural process spurred by the release of oxytocin in a parent or caregiver's brain, a hormone that literally promotes feelings of love and affection. Infants absolutely get the same burst of oxytocin from their brain. Oxytocin is a hormone that's automatically inscribed into the brain. But if you're not getting the affection or attention during those first two years, your brain's not going to release the oxytocin. The biggest long-term effect of not having this attachment is for people as they grow up to not be able to access empathy. This was a major bullet point of Bowlby's maternal deprivation hypothesis, which connected caregiving disruptions in this two-year attachment period to long-term social and cognitive problems. These disruptions include things like emotional neglect and physical abuse, and some of the lasting consequences Bowlby listed are delinquency, reduced intelligence, depression, and aggressive behavior. He also included affectionless psychopathy in this list, a term he coined representing the inability to experience guilt or remorse for antisocial behavior. It's very possible that Jane developed these psychological scars during those early critical years. That would later turn her into a prolific murderer.
1: To add fuel to the fire, Peter Kelly didn't just neglect his daughters, he abandoned them. In 1863, he surrendered his parental rights to six-year-old Honora and her eight-year-old sister Delia Josephine. The Kelly girls were now wards of the Boston Female Asylum. As for their father, Peter, he continued his torrid affair with alcohol until the very end of his life. Although unverified, stories were told of how Kelly the crack had completely lost his mind and sewn his eyelids together. And Jane's older sister, Delia Josephine, would eventually fall victim to alcoholism as well.
0: Many mental health conditions are largely inherited through our genetics, which explains why some of these disorders run in a family. Take, for example, the variation in the ADH1B and ALDH2 genes. These two genes are directly related to alcohol metabolism, And abnormalities with them there are now known to be the strongest ties to a risk for becoming an alcoholic. If you have the gene that allows metabolism to slow down, then you're not going to want to become an alcoholic because you're too uncomfortable with just a small amount of alcoholism. If you have that gene, however, that allows you to metabolize the alcohol quickly, then you're able to drink more and the people that can drink more are the ones that go on to become alcoholics. It is important to mention, however, that there's no one specific gene that guarantees getting this disease, despite these recently discovered inherited genetic markers that relate to it. Rather, alcoholism is a result of our epigenetics, or external factors that commingle with our predestined genetic makeups. In other words, the apple doesn't necessarily fall far from the tree, given the right set of genetic and environmental circumstances.
1: The world would eventually learn that Jane did not branch off too far from her family line. But, in the 1860s, young Jane was sometimes described as a bundle of energy eager to please and took to her education at the asylum. The Boston Female Asylum offered young disadvantaged girls shelter, sustenance, and a modest education that would shape them into a sought-after prize for a New England family – domestic servants. While some girls had the fortune of being adopted by a loving family, most were placed into foster homes as indentured servants by the age of 11 or 12. Jane was no exception. In 1864, less than two years after her arrival at the asylum, eight-year-old Jane had proven her proficiency in the art of cooking, cleaning and sewing and was placed into the foster home of Mrs. Anne C. Toppin of Lowell, Massachusetts. This could have been the start to a happy life. Widow Toppin lived in a large house 30 miles north of Boston and assured asylum board members that the young girl would want for nothing. She even had a daughter of her own who Jane could call a big sister, Elizabeth Toppin. Upon entering the lavish Georgian-style home, however, Jane realized she would not receive the warm embrace of a family. Widow Toppin had no desire to add to her lineage. She apparently only wanted the young girl for what she was taught to be, cheap labor. For the next 10 years, Jane lived as an indentured servant to the Toppen family, taking on all of the menial labor required to run a household. While Widow Toppen doted on her daughter Elizabeth with love and compassion, she criticized and punished Jane for any misdeeds. To make matters worse, Widow Toppen allegedly humiliated Jane for her Irish roots, further damaging the young girl's self-worth. Although Jane was never formally adopted, she severed all ties to her Irish beginnings by relinquishing her given name, Honora Kelly, and taking on her now infamous alias, Jane Toppen. But a new name wasn't enough. She wanted a new life story. Coming up, Jane finds a poisonous purpose. Hi listeners, I'm so excited to introduce you to the newest Spotify original from Parcast called Blind Dating. Hosted by YouTuber Tara Michelle, Blind Dating is a fun twist on a classic setup. Strangers are introduced, conversation commences, and sparks either fly or fizzle. But here's the catch. Our hopeful singles have to choose their match before ever seeing their face. And once they've picked their potential date, We turn the cameras on, and then it's either butterflies or goodbyes. Blind Dating airs weekly with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. By all accounts, Jane Toppin's adolescence was heartbreaking. After she was abandoned by her unstable father, eight-year-old Jane found herself in the indentured servitude of the widowed Anne Toppin. While widow Toppin provided Jane with room, board, and continued access to education, she also shamed the young girl for her sordid upbringing. And soon enough... It seems that Jane might have resented her true identity. So in school, Jane rewrote the story of her life. Her alcoholic and abusive father was now a respectable world traveler. Her non-existent brother had received a medal from the president. And her prostitute sister was so beautiful, she bewitched an English lord. While most students clung to Jane's fantastical tales like Bees to Honey, Others saw them for what they were, flat-out lies. But her tales of grandeur were nothing compared to the salacious rumours she spread about those who challenged her. After weathering years of Widow Toppin's cruelty, Jane also knew how to leave a venomous sting. Despite her charismatic charm and work ethic, Jane was unable to elevate her status after turning 18, when she was released from her indentured servitude. Jane remained in the Toppen residence for another 10 years, now working under a different title, housekeeper. During the greater part of her 20s, Jane ached with envy as her foster sister Elizabeth experienced the charmed life that she was never allowed to have. While Jane was scolded to mop the floors and launder clothes, Elizabeth was advised to relax. While Jane managed the added housework following Widow Toppen's death, Elizabeth received the entire Toppen fortune. And while Jane could only read of romance in her favorite novels, Elizabeth captivated the heart of Oromel Brigham, a well-respected deacon and depot master. Even worse, Elizabeth was completely unaware of Jane's deep-rooted resentment. Unlike her mother, Elizabeth had always attempted to treat her foster sister with kindness. Despite that, by the time Jane turned 28, she had had enough. Jane left the Toppin family home, determined to make something of her life. With no family or fortune to rely on, Jane knew she needed to be practical. More importantly, she needed a job that would give her a semblance of power and respect. So, in 1887, 30-year-old Jane enrolled in the nursing school at the Cambridge Hospital of Massachusetts. Nursing was far from a glamorous profession. Cambridge nursing students were required to take on an intensive workload, all while taking classes in preparation for a final exam. Students spent the entirety of their program on the hospital grounds and were subject to strict, uncompromising rules. While many students struggled to manage their schedules, Jane made it look easy. She maintained her charismatic charm all while cleaning the bedpans of disgruntled patients. It may be because she'd cooked, cleaned and taken care of people for the greater part of her life and was used to it. Or perhaps it was a facade like the lies she told in school. (coughs) Whatever the case, Jane bewitched many members of the Cambridge Hospital staff, as well as her patients with her intoxicating personality. And soon, the popular and portly nurse earned the nickname Jolly Jane. For the first time in her life, Jane received tastes of love and admiration. Perhaps this education is what enabled Jane to embark on her murderous path. As nursing students received comprehensive training on medication and dosages, Jane began to understand the raw power the role yielded. The lives of her patients were in her hands, and she soon began to take advantage. Author Harold Schechter writes that when a patient she liked was well enough to leave, Jane would administer small doses of medication that would make them feel worse. Not seriously ill, just sick enough to remain in the hospital for an extra week or so. Jane not only nursed her patients with her larger-than-life personality, she also administered extra doses of medication. Over time, Jane would use these same techniques on the patients she most detested but with deadlier consequences while her exact death count is unknown it's believed that Jane's first victims were Cambridge hospital patients given the relatively rudimentary medical practices of the Victorian era however hospital patients frequently died under physician care as such Jane's first murders likely went wholly unnoticed and unaccounted for during her years of training. Even still, Jane knew she had to be methodical. Whenever she administered lethal doses, Jane made sure to falsify records with regard to a patient's symptoms and medications. When it became clear that no one was the wiser, Jane used Cambridge Hospital as her poisonous playground. She experimented with various medications, eager to see the unique effects that each drug had on patients. Soon enough, Jane developed a poison of choice, a combination of morphine and atropine. She typically administered a heavy dose of morphine and watched her victims regress into a calming twilight state. Then she would coax them to gulp down a bitter glass of mineral water laced with enough atropine to
0: potentially send them into delirium. While both drugs were readily available during the 19th century, their side effects were vastly different. Atropine is a drug commonly used to treat certain nerve and pesticide poisonings, dry up the body's secretions, and reverse a dangerous bradycardia, which is a very slow heart rate. It works by blocking the parasympathetic nervous system's influence on the heart, which is a part of the nervous system that slows critical autonomic functions, like our breathing and heart rate. If administered in excess, atropine can cause hallucinations and delirium, in addition to heart palpitations and coma, which can lead to death. The combination of morphine and atropine would heighten the likelihood and severity of these side effects and at the right doses have life-threatening consequences. While morphine slows respiration, atropine increases heart rate, complicating the life-sustaining interaction between the respiratory and cardiovascular systems. As such, a decrease in the blood's oxygen levels combined with a rapid heart rate can create irreversible and sometimes deadly tissue damage throughout the body. The simultaneous use of these medications would also muddy any toxicology report. And by mixing these highly potent medications, Jane made it nearly impossible to diagnose her victims' deaths.
1: And so the meticulous nurse found her favorite blend of medications to conceal her crimes. To further avoid detection, Jane frequently dispensed her poisons in a glass of Hunyadi mineral water, The extremely popular and rather bitter-tasting beverage was marketed as a general cure-all for digestive issues. While unsuspecting patients believed they were receiving first-rate care, Jane was simply masking the bitter taste of poison. In 1887, during her first year at Cambridge, Jane offered a poisonous concoction to one of her first known victims, Amelia Finney. Soon after ingesting the bitter medicine, 36-year-old Amelia began to slip in and out of consciousness. In moments of clarity, she recalled that a mysterious woman, later known to be Jane, sprawled beside her in bed and showered her with kisses. But Jane wasn't in pursuit of erotic foreplay alone. She was also hoping to reach a deadly climax. Jane derived a sexual thrill from watching people die. When Jane sensed Amelia nearing her end, she forced open Amelia's heavy eyelids and gazed into her eyes, almost as though she wanted to see Amelia's soul depart her body. Luckily for Amelia, someone interrupted Jane's late-night attack, and Amelia only consumed a small quantity of the poison. As she awoke the next morning to friendly faces, she chalked the whole experience up to a very peculiar dream. Jane wasn't suspected of malice or sexual assault. Although Jane managed to keep her poisonous inclination secret, she continued to cause trouble among her peers. Just as she had done in high school, Jane spread vicious lies about other nursing students. Fortunately for Jane, she had secured the favor of her Cambridge supervisors and was recommended to Massachusetts General Hospital to further her education in 1888. Now attending one of the most prestigious nursing programs in the nation, Jane felt untouchable. But even though she gained the trust of renowned doctors and respectable families, she also developed a long list of enemies at Massachusetts General. As such, she continued her pernicious ways, spreading rumour after rumour about any nurse who rubbed her the wrong way. In 1890, Jane got a healthy dose of her own bitter medicine. Someone ratted on Jane for leaving the medical ward without approval. As the nursing students were subjected to a strict code of conduct, Jane was immediately kicked out of the programme.
0: For a nurse to be dismissed from nursing school would require several complicated problems uh, that were more personality-oriented, but it's very uncommon for nurses to be let go from their programs. In order to become a registered nurse or get an RN degree, one must complete an accredited registered nursing program that combines coursework with hands-on clinical training. This training, in turn, prepares future nurses for their licensing exam, a national examination for all RNs, a test that currently has a passage rate of about 75%. In addition to passing this exam and gaining state accreditation, registered nurses are required to complete ongoing education to maintain their licenses. Clearly, becoming a nurse and maintaining a nursing career has never been easy. It's not something that everyone's cut out for.
1: Whether or not Massachusetts General Hospital thought her fit to be a nurse, Jane remained unbothered. She simply packed her bags and, after briefly working as a private nurse, returned to Cambridge Hospital in the fall of 1890. And as always, Jolly Jane continued using her charisma to gain favour, all the while experimenting on patients. Although Jane's likely murders went unnoticed during her training, hospital administration soon realized that she had been recklessly dispensing drugs to patients. In 1891, Jane was dismissed from Cambridge Hospital too. Despite four years of nursing school, Jane never received her nursing license. But at that point, she had proven her competency to some of the best physicians in the country. She didn't need a license, she had credibility. It was only a matter of time before Jane would become a highly recommended private nurse in Eastern Massachusetts. Up next, Jane preys on those closest to her. Now, back to the story. When she was dismissed from her second nursing school program, 34-year-old jolly Jane Toppin remained unruffled. By 1891, she had already developed the skills and reputation to start a successful career as a private nurse. In the late 19th century, some private nurses were making higher wages than their in-hospital counterparts. Of course, the hours were long and the work was exhaustive, but a private nurse potentially had the freedom of picking and choosing her clients. Or, for someone like Jane, Picking and Choosing Her Victims.
0: Practicing at a patient's home requires a certain bedside manner, finesse, and a likability factor that can seldom be taught. I think Jane Toppin was a perfect fit for working in people's homes. And this is because she learned early on, in order to have relationships, she had to be the most charming version of herself. What she was lacking was the empathy to actually back it up. While hospital nurses can theoretically clock out whenever their shift is over, private in-home nurses must provide care and vigilance around the clock. In tandem with a physician, home nurses commonly treat geriatric patients, people with debilitating illnesses, recently discharged hospital and surgical patients, and those detoxifying from addictive drugs. This kind of work requires great patience and a caring disposition. It takes a special type of person to be a private in-home nurse.
1: Jane Toppen was perfect for this job. Although she never had a real family of her own, she was now paid to take care of the loved ones of the most reputable families in Massachusetts. Essentially, she could carve out a role as part of the family, though poisoning these families would be much more difficult. While a nursing student in training, Jane had access to a well-stocked supply room. She could poison any number of hospital patients in a given day and their deaths would go seemingly unnoticed. But now, she might only see one client at a time. Perhaps this is why her murders evolved to be more personal. Jolly Jane couldn't poison all of her patients. Her reputation and livelihood was on the line. And so, Jane Toppin began to target the people closest to her, those she called her friends and family, and more specifically, those she shared a home with. In the early 1890s, landlords Israel and Lovey Dunham grew fond of their tenant, Nurse Jane. Although she was unmarried and without children, the 38-year-old provided the elderly couple with a source of passive income and endless entertainment. And when Jane wasn't away nursing an ailing client, she even tended to their medical needs. However, in May of 1895, Jane grew weary of 77-year-old Israel Dunham and poisoned him. According to author Harold Schechter the acting physician attributed Dunham's death to heart failure brought on by a strangulated
0: hernia. A strangulated hernia is a hernia that cuts off blood flow to the abdomen, specifically to the intestines and other abdominal organs and tissues. This happens when a portion of the small intestine pushes through a weak spot in the muscle wall of the abdomen. The surrounding muscle then squeezes a herniated bowel which inhibits blood flow and circulation to this protruding portion of the intestine. A strangulated hernia can only go unnoticed for a short time because the symptoms that it produces are severe and the pain is unbelievably difficult and medical attention is usually sought immediately. In rare cases, a strangulated hernia can ultimately lead to heart failure by increasing edema, or swelling in the tissues throughout the body, including the heart. This swelling can compromise the heart's circulation, which limits its ability to receive oxygen. This causes the heart muscles to fail, rendering it unable to pump blood to the vital organs. Interestingly, this mechanism of death is similar to what results from combining morphine and atropine, as the heart ultimately stops functioning due to a lack of circulation.
1: Considering Dunham's old age, there was little reason to suspect any foul play. As such, when his wife, Lovey Dunham, met the same fate two years later, no one considered that Jane had poisoned both of her landlords. Although Jane had been dealt a bad hand in childhood, she knew how to play her cards as an adult. Doctors and family sought after Jane for her personable charm and professional mastery. Author Harold Schechter writes, from 1892 until 1900, she was reputedly the most successful private nurse in Cambridge. Despite all odds, and at least two murders, Jane had somehow made it in society. She had overcome the difficulties of her upbringing and managed to secure her status as an honorable woman. Jane had finally lived up to her Irish birth name. But it wasn't enough to have, she needed to take. It seems that in Jane's mind, there was one person standing in her way of true happiness. Her foster sister, Elizabeth. Although Elizabeth had always tried to be compassionate, Jane still carried the heavy weight of resentment from growing up in her shadow. Completely unaware, Elizabeth longed to bolster their relationship and had always left the door open for Jane. So when 42-year-old Jane invited Elizabeth to vacation with her on the beaches of Cape Cod, Elizabeth accepted. Even her doting husband Ormel Brigham encouraged Elizabeth to go. Elizabeth had been battling bouts of depression, and Oromel hoped that Jolly Jane would lift her spirits. So, in late August of 1899, Elizabeth Brigham made the trip to the seashores of Catamit, Massachusetts. Although the nearly 100-mile journey was taxing, Elizabeth managed to find her footing. On August 26, the two Foster sisters enjoyed an idyllic day at the beach soaking up the sun's rays while nibbling on saltwater taffy. Elizabeth seemed happy in the company of her foster sister. Perhaps Oramel was right. A few days' respite was exactly what she needed. Upon returning to their rental cottage, however, Elizabeth felt unwell. Jane likely sprang to action and offered her a bitter-tasting beverage to quell her pain. But it was no painkiller. Jane had reportedly dissolved three tablets of strychnine into a glass of mineral water. Just like morphine and atropine, strychnine causes seriously fatal and potentially painful reactions upon its victims. And Jane loved to watch them suffer. Jane derived immense satisfaction in Elizabeth's agony. She infamously described her sister's last night on Earth. I held her in my arms and watched with delight as she gasped her life out. As Elizabeth's symptoms grew worse overnight, Jane was sure to notify the local physician. She even parlayed the unfortunate news to her brother-in-law, Oramel. When Oramel arrived at the Katonmet cottage on August 28th, his beloved wife was nearing her end. He watched helplessly as his Elizabeth died. Her cause of death was listed as a stroke
0: of apoplexy. Stroke of apoplexy is actually a dated term for what we now simply call a stroke. In fact, the word apoplexy has origins in ancient Greece, translating approximately to struck down with violence and refers to a sudden loss of consciousness and paralysis of various parts of the body. A stroke occurs when the blood supply to a part of the brain is cut off, preventing adequate delivery of oxygen and nutrients. If a stroke happens in a region of the brain that controls major organs, like the heart or lungs, it can be life-threatening. Some common symptoms associated with a deadly stroke are headache, loss of speech, muscle spasms, pain, and paralysis. Comparatively, strychnine poisoning can mimic these exact symptoms and a doctor without a full understanding of the situation might mistakenly conclude that a person died of a stroke. Without an autopsy, it could be nearly impossible to tell the difference between these two causes of death, and it's highly unlikely that Oromel Brigham noticed anything odd about his wife's passing.
1: Even after his wife died, he too tried to maintain a good relationship with Jane. Before Oromel Brigham returned home a widower, Jane revealed that Elizabeth had willed her gold watch to Jane. Touched by his wife's charity, Oromel fulfilled Elizabeth's dying wish. Even in death, Jane wanted to take all she could from her foster sister. And that included her husband. Ever calculating, Jane was sure to depart from her brother-in-law on good terms. She would be back again to lay claim on the only thing Elizabeth had left in this world. Next time on Medical Murders, Jolly Jane kills off the Davis family and conspires to wed her grieving brother-in-law. But as her actions grow bolder and more devious, she leaves behind a trail of suspicions that leads to her ultimate demise. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: For more information on Jane, among the many sources we used, we found Fatal, The Poisonous Life of a Female Serial Killer by Harold Schechter, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Medical Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders was created by Max Cutler and is a Parker Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Carly Madden, Kristen Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Jonathan Ratliff, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Jane O, oh, with writing assistance by Andrew Messer, and stars David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Hey listeners, don't forget to follow Blind Dating for a fun twist on a classic setup. YouTuber and host Tara Michelle can't wait to help hopeful singles meet their match. Search Blind Dating and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.